0: Well, welcome, you survived the storm so far. Uh, You got here, that's good. Uh, I was texting with a pastor buddy of mine over in Tyler this morning who uh, said their power went out for most of the morning until right before they started worship. And uh, his text was it just might be him and the 12 disciples uh, for church, but... I think we fared maybe a little bit better over this way. I'm so thankful you guys are here. I heard last week about a uh, research project. Maybe it interests you. It interested me. It was, uh, and maybe there's even some viral videos going on about it. I haven't seen the videos yet, but I heard about it. Uh, uh, there's some researchers who are trying to to learn about child psychology. And actually some of the things they're learning are applying to uh, even adults. Uh, the, the research is this. The method is that they bring... a child into a room with a table with a sweet treat on the table and the 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 researcher comes in and usually an adult is an adult and says okay here's the deal I'm gonna leave you can eat this treat if you want but when I come back if you haven't eaten it I'm gonna give you 10 treats or 20 (laughs) treats What would you do? I'm going to try something here. Let's just take a little survey here. If you're uh, under the age of 18 and you would eat the treat right away, just raise your hand. Let me check. Okay, you're holding out, all right? So under the age of 18, if you are holding out for the 10, 20 treats, raise your hand. I'm looking here for some under 18-year-olds over here. Some of you are opting not to participate in this study. That's okay. All right my son says he's holding out. He might. He might. What they found is that very few people hold out. Very few kids. Usually when they close the door is when the treat gets eaten. Like almost immediately. Some are able to hold out and you see them in the videos visibly squirming you know looking at the treat should I eat it no I gotta wait you know it's a very uh, visceral visible reaction that they're having and I think adults if you're over the age of 60 okay what would you do uh, uh, raise your hand if you're holding out for the 20 treats over the age of 60 okay a few of you over the age of 60 how many are going to eat it right away okay you gotta eat it right away you're like hey you know what you got to get it now I'm not sure what's going to happen you know I'm not guaranteed another minute right none of us are okay that's just a little fun exercise well Genesis 16 uh, is about a mistake that Abram and Sarai make because short-term opportunities had clouded their long-term judgment they had something that they thought was right in front of them that they could take and enjoy or at least accomplish for themselves. Uh, and it short-circuited uh, God's plan for their long-term blessing. This is what happens. We, we have desire that seems to cloud our judgment. And regardless of your age, we know what's true in the long run. But we have trouble making decisions because we often think about what is the here and now. What's the, what matters right now. And in some cases, a short-sighted decision can short-circuit our lives. So Genesis 16 is where we are in our study of Genesis, and we're picking up with our kind of main characters at this point, Abram and his wife, Sarai. I just wanna read Genesis 16, one through six for you, and then we're gonna cover the second half of the chapter at the end. <clears throat> so read along with me, Genesis 16, uh, I'll read it. You can follow along on the screen or in your Bible. It says, Abram's wife, Sarai, had not borne any children for him, but... She owned an Egyptian slave named Hagar. And Sarai said to him, Since the Lord has prevented me from bearing children, go to my slave. Perhaps through her I can build a family. And Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So Abram's wife Sarai took Hagar, her Egyptian slave, and gave her to her husband Abram as a wife for him. This happened after Abram had lived in the land of Canaan ten years he slept with Hagar and she became pregnant. When she saw that she was pregnant, her mistress became contemptible to her. Then Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for my suffering. I put my slave in your arms and when she saw that she was pregnant, I became contemptible to her. May the Lord, Lord judge between me and you. And Abram replied to Sarai, here, your slave is in your hands. Do whatever you want with her. And Sarai mistreated her so much she ran away from her wow this story is like getting real deep real quick real dramatic real quick let's just walk through i want to show you some things first if we're starting in verse one you might be reminded right off the bat of the tension that's there i mean last week we saw god's amazing proof of his trustworthiness to Abram, right? He set up the covenant uh, through the ceremony where he walked through, and, and God took on both sides of the covenant. You might remember that Abram withheld himself from walking through, making that commitment because he knew he couldn't keep the covenant with God. That ultimately, that would mean God would have to kill him. But what God did beautifully was take on both sides of the covenant. He walked through. for both parties, so that if Abram failed, which yes, he would fail the covenant, God would pay the penalty himself for Abram's failure. That, I hope, sounds familiar to the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is that when we fail, and yes, we have failed God through sin, God makes the commitment, the covenant to us, and he's already done the work necessary to take on the punishment for our sin upon himself. He did that through Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for our sins so that we don't have to die for our sins. We can be welcomed into an eternal relationship with God by faith. This is the good news of Jesus, and it shows up in Genesis chapter 15 uh, as kind of a preview of that in the covenant. So God is renewing the promise that he's made to Abram to give him a, a, a huge family, to make him into a great nation, that his children, descendants, would be as numerous as the stars, that he would also die peacefully at an old age that the tension would be resolved eventually and that his descendants would ultimately inherit the promised land. This is what God has reminded Abram of going into chapter 16 but the beginning of chapter 16 reminds us of the tension that's so thick you can cut it with a knife. Sarai is barren. All the promises of God seem to depend on her ability to have children and she can't yet. So we know When we see this tension in Abraham's kind of up and down roller coaster faith, we got to ask the question Will Abram and Sarai respond with faith or not? And if you read the second half of verse one, you can make a pretty solid prediction that they're not going to choose faith. Do you see how the contrast set it up? Sarai was barren, but she owned a slave. That's not really how that should work. That that sentence should play out. Sarai was barren, but she trusted God. That's how it should read, but that's not what happens. So no, they're not going to choose faith. Uh, This is a callback, by the way, this Egyptian slave to Abram's first failure of faith in chapter 12, a few chapters back where he left the promised land because of famine and then ultimately to survive in Egypt where they sought food and shelter. He offered Sarai, his wife, up so as to save his own skin that if she's so beautiful, they're gonna take her and kill me. So if I just say she's my sister and offer him, offer her to someone, then then maybe it'll spare my life. And she ended up in Pharaoh's household and then God intervenes. God rescues them from this terrible situation. Abram even leaves Egypt with great wealth Monetarily, uh, lots of animals, and even slaves, people now that he owns, which by the way, the Bible does not condone that. (laughs) This is just what happens in this story. So Abram leaves with all this stuff, among whom is presumably this woman, Hagar, who's now been living in Abram's household as a slave to Sarai for all this time. And as time passes, what Abram's learning, we've already seen in chapter 13, we see here again that the stuff and the people that he acquired in Egypt may look like a blessing, like what you see on Instagram when someone all of a sudden has all the new cars and houses and fancy stuff and they go hashtag blessed. It looks like a blessing, but it actually caused him great trouble. And we see this again. So here's the first warning that this text shows us. It's that the sinful choice May appear to have short term benefits, but always has long term costs. This is just a warning that we need to heed as we look at the story of Abram and not choosing faith. The sinful choice always appears to have short term benefits, but it always comes with long term costs. Now, in verse 2, instead of blessing God for all that he had done for Abram and Sarai to this point, Everything that he had done to uphold his end of the deal, everything that he had done to rescue them from their terrible choices and point them again and again to his promise that he will fulfill. Instead of blessing God for that, Sarai is blaming God for her barrenness, for her struggle, for her inability to have children up to this point, which led her to devise her own scheme to build a family. Did you see that word, build a family? That same word came up a few chapters ago, by the way, in chapter 11, in the story of the Tower of Babel. Do you remember when the people went uh, toward Babylon uh, to the east, and they uh, said, let's let's build a city and a tower together. For what reason? But to make a name for ourselves. This is the author of Genesis in his way, uh, who's Kind of like ringing the alarm bells for us as we read Sarai's story to go, Oh, yeah, I remember that wasn't good for them. This is not going to be good for Sarai. She wants to make a name for herself, essentially. She wants to build her own family. What she's doing is exercising autonomy from God. She's essentially saying, I am done with God. I now want to be my own God. This is the gravity of what's happening in verse two. So as strange as this situation sounds to us, first of all, that she can own a slave, then second of all, that she can offer her slave as a second wife to her husband. We get this weird triangle going on. It kind of sounds strange. It was actually a socially accepted practice uh, to perpetuate your family through a slave if you were unable to bear children. Interesting. So the question is, Does that make it okay? No. No, it absolutely doesn't make what they're doing okay. So Abram had heard God say that his offspring would come from his own body. That was in chapter 15, if you remember. But he and Sarai completely misconstrued this reality. And then they began to think that if it's not happening from God, that maybe it's up to us to make it happen in another way. And so they determined to achieve the promise by adopting a pagan practice, a socially accepted practice, but not a divinely accepted practice. The reality, though, we got to face is that God will never compromise his precepts To bring about his promise. God will never compromise his precepts to bring about his promise. He had already clearly defined marriage in Genesis chapter 2 as an exclusively loyal, unbreakable union between one man and one woman. God had already clearly defined it. His precept was there. Abram and Sarai, this is the the words that had been passed down from generation to generation. You remember Abram was a descendant of uh, Adam? who then bore Seth, who then perpetuated the line all the way down to Noah. Then humanity was wiped out. So Noah started over, started over in Noah's family again. Noah had some cursed son named Ham. And then we have another son of Noah named Shem who was blessed. Shem meaning name, the name of God is what we're really after here. And then it's through Shem that we get Abram. So Abram, it's in his family heritage. Not only... By ideology but by experience that this is God's practice God's precept for marriage one man one woman unbreakable union exclusive loyalty he knew yet he chooses the short-sighted choice it's a clear violation this is the kind of choice that people make all the time maybe you've heard it this way God wants me to be happy right If God wants me to be happy, then I should be able to choose what I want. This is kind of like the clarion call of our culture even today. So, by the way, number one, this is not new. (laughs) Number two is, God, shouldn't we have figured this out by now? I mean, this is the reality of Scripture that God made you in His image. And so true flourishing is when you look like Him. Which means the best choice is to do what He wants, not what I want. That's where I find true blessing and happiness. So God made you in his image too. God made you to reflect him. God made Abram and Sarai to reflect him, but this choice short circuits that and they choose the short-sighted choice. So here's the second warning that we see here. It's that just because something is socially acceptable, it doesn't make it acceptable to God. And it could short circuit your life pursuing your own passions and desires could actually lead you to less than what God wants not more than but most people tend to choose their own way because they haven't seen God come through yet maybe every parent in the world was right when they said just because everyone else is doing it doesn't make it right did anybody else's mom or dad say that to you Whoa, wonder for those wonder if they were right. <clears throat> Genesis makes it blatantly obvious for us that, Gen, that chapter 16, what's happening with Abraham and Sarai is sin. Look at verse 3 and 4. Sarai took Hagar and gave her to Abram. Now, this is the exact thing that Eve did with the fruit in the garden in chapter 3, verse 6. Eve Took the fruit and gave it to Adam. So again, Genesis is like sounding the alarm bells. The decision that Abram and Sarah are making here is wrong. It is against God's plan. It is a lack of faith. It's a rebellion against God. It's exercising autonomy from God, not under the authority of God. So we're 16 chapters into the story of our beginnings, that the world has been populated and then destroyed and then repopulated yet God continues to pursue sinful humanity in order to bless them that's the theme of the entire book of Genesis yet here we are again people repeating the same old sin taking matters into their own hands in order to be like God the original temptation in the garden is exactly what's happening to Abram and Sarai moreover For all the heroics of faith that we see from Abram in his lifetime recorded in Genesis right here in chapter 16, he does an exact repeat like deja vu of Adam in the garden passively engaging in sin with no hesitation. We talked about Adam in Genesis 3. Eve hands him the fruit. What should Adam's response be? Don't do it, Eve. Remember God said... We can eat from every tree, just not this one. You're being deceived. But what does Adam do? He just takes and eats. Abram makes the same passive decision. It's the fall all over again. And so what should we expect to happen next but the fallout? Chaos in Abram's household is a direct result of sin. So then we can move on to verse four through six. When I grew up, uh, I became like a preteen, a teenager. My parents would let me be home at, after, at like at, after school. Before they came home from work, I could be home with my brother. That's a bad idea. I mean, I, my parents, I think they loved us and cared for us. And for some reason, they trusted us. Uh, that was a bad idea. So what did we do but turn on the TV? Uh, we were supposed to be doing homework and things like that. And if we weren't like kicking a ball in the house because mom wasn't there to tell us not to, We were watching tv the kind of things you find on tv four o'clock in the afternoon are not the things you really need to be watching maybe you've seen these uh these like afternoon talk shows that sort of specialize in like relationship drama and triangles and there's like always fighting and people yelling at each other that kind of stuff if you've seen that you've seen genesis 16. this is what happens in verses four through six so the the temperature is just getting so hot in this family hagar gets pregnant not only has she done the one thing sarah hadn't but wanted to in cultural terms now the family org chart has flipped the slave is now above the wife so hagar was intent on making sure sarah didn't forget it she became contemptible to her that's what that means so Sarai goes back to Abram, who again remains completely passive, not even referring to Hagar by name, not even referring to her maybe as even his second wife, but just saying, hey, she's your slave, do whatever you gotta do. And then we see Sarai going way too far. And things keep getting turned up until it boils over. And Hagar chooses to flight over fight and she runs away. So the end of verse six is the climax of hopelessness for Hagar, for Abram, for Sarai, for everybody involved. It's the climax of hopelessness. But verse 7 and following reminds us that there is always hope above our circumstances, there's always a hope above our situation. My friend Greg Martin, who's one of our pastors over in Longview, likes to remind me on occasion that when it's really cloudy outside on a day like today, when you feel like everything's just dark and gloomy, he goes, but you remember the sun's still shining above the clouds. Isn't that hard? It's hard for us to remember that, right? When things are going really poorly, we get distracted by the clouds and we think that's all there is. But there's always something above our situation, right? And we're going to find out that God reveals himself to Hagar in verses 7 and following. So let's read it together. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring in the wilderness. The spring on the way to Shur, that is on the way to Egypt. He said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from? Where are you going? She replied, I'm running away. From my mistress Sarai. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Go back to your mistress and submit to her authority. And the angel of the Lord said to her, I'll greatly multiply your offspring. there will be too many to count. The angel of the Lord said to her, You have conceived and will have a son. You'll name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard your cry of affliction. This man will be like a wild donkey. His hand will be against everyone, everyone's hand will be against him. And he'll settle, settle near all his relatives. So she named the Lord who spoke to her, "You are El Roy," for she said, "In this place have I actually seen the one who sees me." That's why the well is called Beer Lahayroi. It's between Kadesh and Bared. So Hagar gave birth to Abram's son, and Abram named his son whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. I want you to see the heart of God in the second half of this chapter. We've already seen people, the choices they make and the chaos that ensues when they choose to not act in faith. But I want you to see God here. Hagar was an Egyptian slave and a woman to boot in this day she had nothing going for her if you've ever waited till the end of a movie and you see the credits start to roll you know when the credits start rolling the main characters come first hagar would have been so far down that list that you and i would have turned off the tv a long time ago right she didn't matter but she mattered to god and this tells us so much more about god than it does about hagar So instead of following the main characters, God shows regard for the lowly, for the outsider, for the taken advantage of, for the sufferer. Sometimes you're the sinner, like Abram and Sarai. Sometimes you are the sinned against. And Hagar is here in chapter 16 to show us that God has regard for you. If you have been sinned against. Now, chapter 17, God will extend redemption to Abram yet again, but not before he first extends rescue to Hagar, the victim. So, there's hope. There's hope for you if you have been sinned against, and can I just say carefully and lovingly as a pastor that I recognize there are people in churches who claim to be godly who have sinned against you. God is bigger than that person's sin. God still cares for you. God sees you in your pain. God sees you in your heartache. God sees you in your wandering. God sees you as you don't know what life holds next. This is who he is. This is how Hagar even responds in verse 13. She does something that no person in the entire Old Testament ever did. Not Abram, not Moses, not not David, not Elijah, not Elisha, not any of the prophets, none of them. No man or woman in the entire Old Testament ever did what Hagar did in verse 13. She named God. Because of what God did for her, she responded with giving him a name. She said, you are El Roy. She said, you are God Sees Me. That was how she named him. God Sees You but with this hope comes hard teaching if you look at verse 9 God says return to your mistress and submit this is tough for us to swallow as we go okay yes Hagar is the victim here how could God be sending her back into this kind of situation where there's probably abuse happening right how, Is that what God wants let me just say as a pastor no God does not want abuse if you're in a situation of abuse, get out and don't go back. Let us help you get out, okay? So what's happening here? Well, not that. If God's asking Hagar to reverse course on her own sinfulness. Let me explain that. When she got pregnant, the org chart of the family flipped, and Hagar wrongfully lorded it over Sarai. That's where the whole contemptible issue came in in the first six verses. That was sin for Hagar. God is saying, reverse course. Yes, I see you. Yes, you were sinned against. Yes, it's caused pain, it's caused heartache. Now you're wandering alone and pregnant in the wilderness, not knowing what's next. Yes, someone could come along and swoop you back up and make you a slave in another household. Yes, you may end up in Egypt if you keep going this way, but God, the God who sees you is saying, return, repent from your sinfulness and return to submission. Hagar's submissive return would presumably bring the temperature down. In Abram's household and maybe restore peace so that Abram's house would again be able to be the blessing to the world that God intended it to be this is the way I read it I'm not sure there's probably some mystery here about Hagar and her situation and why God sent her back and maybe one day when we stand before God we're gonna ask that question but from what I can see in the text here's just what I want to propose That God was calling Hagar to repent from her sinfulness to restore peace in Abram's household so that Abram's household could again be restored to being a blessing to the whole world. And what this reminds us of, by the way, is that God chose to bless the whole world through Abram. Through his household. So asking Hagar to go back, if you look at it this way, is now an act of grace. Because God is saying, return to the sphere of blessing. If the world's gonna be blessed through this household, Hagar, I want you to be as close to that blessing as possible. So Hagar did what Lot refused to do. Remember Lot, Abram's nephew? He had the opportunity twice to stay in the household of Abram and he rejected it and he walked away from God. It did not end well for him. Hagar did what Sarai could not do in submitting to God in obedience. And she was blessed. Hagar obeyed and submitted and was blessed. This is the response that we ought to have from this, by the way. Because we have a God who sees, we must be people who obey. Because we have a God who sees. We must be people who obey. God sees you where you are. But God doesn't want you to stay there. If you're wandering in sin, God is calling you back to faithfulness. If you're wandering away from God, God sees you and he's saying, that's not the direction of blessing. I want you to return to faithful obedience because that is where true blessing is found. So because God sees, we must be people who respond in faithful obedience to God and God blessed Hagar's obedience. Similarly similarly to how he promised to bless Abram said she's going to have a huge family. She too won't be able to count her descendants. But this son Ishmael would not be a blessing to Abram or to his household. Ishmael for Abram would be a constant reminder of his lack of faith. Because that's why this situation occurred. Because Abram chose the short-sighted path. And short-sighted faith, as we said earlier in our warning, always has long-term costs. So like we said before, the consequences of sin are far-reaching. You can open your news app this morning. I already tried this. And you will see headlines today about Israel in the Gaza Strip and the war with Hamas. And this all stems from Genesis 16. All the way back, Abram's descendants through his future son Isaac become the Jewish people. Abram's descendants through his son Ishmael, born to him by Hagar, become the Arab nations. And it says, like you can almost smell the conflict in uh, verse 12 where it says that Ishmael will settle near his relatives. That's what all this is about, right? Land. Land. Whose land is this? It all goes back to Genesis 16, which is why we cannot read our Bibles through the lens of the the news, but we must read our news through the lens of the Bible. Okay, we've got to start here so that we can comprehend what's really happening out there. All right? So while Ishmael was always a reminder to Abram of his sin, every time Hagar spoke his name, she would be reminded of the God who saw her, that he is also the God who hears her. Did you catch that? Ishmael's name means God hears, because God heard her in her affliction. Hagar recognized God as the God who sees, but then God revealed himself to her as even closer than that. You know, you can see from a distance, but to, cl- to hear, you gotta get up close. God was that close to Hagar in her need. Well, what was revealed to Hagar by the angel of the Lord through Ishmael and through his name is actually what Abram and Sarai should have known and already been practicing, that God is a God who hears. And so what Hagar's story does contrast what a life of faith looks like from abram and sarah's lack of faith in their waiting they ought to have been praying to the god who hears and this is the second response we have to have is that because we have a god who hears we must be a people who pray we must be a people who pray. And I want to land on this a little bit as our kind of final application for this morning and maybe the biggest application for this morning. If we don't pray, if we don't become people who pray, then we, like Sarai, will devise our own plans to build our lives and end up with more chaos and less blessing. But if we learn like Hagar because God hears that we can pray in every season that we will become people who are with God and see God despite our circumstances. That we'll learn to be people who see the one who is above our situation if we like like Hagar will learn to pray because we know now God hears. So seasons of growth that are good, seasons of stagnation where you realize I just am not doing anything, seasons of sorrow, seasons of loss, seasons of confusion, seasons of celebration. Whatever it is, we can be people who pray. Take the Psalms for example. Uh, This is Jesus' prayer book, by the way. 40% of the Psalms are Psalms of sorrow or lament. 40%. Only 27% are Psalms of praise. Even less than that, only 5% of psalms are psalms of thanksgiving. I wonder if you were to catalog your own prayer life, how would those categories shake out for you? If you pray at meals three times a day, that's a lot of thanksgiving. How many prayers of praise? Hopefully more. I'm curious how many prayers of lament do you pray? How many prayers of sorrow do you pray? So I think like Sarai and Abram, when life kind of gets on pause or we don't see God at work, we tend to go the other direction. And what God calls us to do is go deeper toward him. To go further toward him in prayer and so what genesis 16 and the psalms teach us about prayer is that the best time to pray is when you don't feel like it that's the best time to pray when you can't make sense of your circumstances when you aren't sure how things are going to work out these are the times that we must persist in prayer because when it doesn't look like anything is happening out here when it doesn't look like God's answering our prayers out there if we persist in prayer you can be guaranteed that something's happening in here that God is doing something on the inside when we aren't sure what it looks like yet on the outside and so we must persist in prayer Abram and Sarai were in a season of waiting I don't think it's any accident there are 18 psalms about waiting on God It's one of the most repeated phrases in all of the Psalms. Wait on the Lord. I waited on the Lord. I wait patiently on the Lord. It's over and over and over because it's got to be what we become. You see, the point of prayer isn't to get something from God. The point of prayer is to be with God and become like him. Imagine how different Genesis 16 might have been had Abram and Sarai practiced praying in their waiting. Not that their circumstance would have changed necessarily, but they would have. And they would have made different choices. Choices of faith that led to blessing rather than the short-term choice that led to sin, and chaos. So you might say, well, pastor, I'm not even sure. I don't even know how to pray. I mean, I barely got the mealtime prayer down. What am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to learn? Well, I love what happened here. Hagar didn't really even voice words, did she? And God still heard. That is how close God is to you. A good reminder is just to take a breath in and out. And remember that that is only possible because of God's constant sovereign activity in your life. So when you aren't sure what to say, breathe and remember God is that close to you. Closer even than the air you breathe. What an incredible Reality. Another reason Hagar may not have voiced any words is maybe she didn't know how, she didn't know what to say. She hadn't seen it modeled for her by Abram and Sarai. I mean, what if she had learned from them how to just stumble through prayers? What if she had learned from them how to wait patiently in prayer? Who knows how different it would have been? But by God's grace, he still listened, even when she didn't know what to say or how to say it or who to say it to. God was there. I love what Eugene Peterson says about prayer. I've shared this before. He says that we don't have to understand a crowbar to put it to use. Understanding comes with use. The same is true of prayer. So, the most practical thing you can do today in response to Genesis chapter 16 is pray because God hears. And you can start by answering the question that God asks Hagar. The angel of the Lord came to Hagar, found her in the wilderness. And did you see what he said? Hagar, slave of Sarai, where are you coming from? Where are you going? You're not sure how to start talking to God. You can answer those two questions. And that's a great way to start praying tell him where you're coming from tell him the sin that has led you astray tell him what's happened to you that's led you farther away from him tell him where you are and then hear the call where are you going back to faithful obedience God, I'm coming from a long way away. I'm coming from a wilderness. I'm coming from a place of hurt. I'm coming from a place of pain. God, I'm coming from a place of confusion. God, I don't know where I'm coming from, but I want now that I see you, the God who sees me and the God who hears me, I want now to return to go toward you to a place of faithful obedience. That is the call. And that is where you will find true blessing. And true flourishing is coming back to God. So I want to give you a chance today to pray. We're going to make that our response today. It's just a moment where you can pray. Our worship team's going to come. They're going to lead us in a song. And I just want to invite you either to come to the altar here or make your chair an altar. Where you can just talk to God while the band leads us in a time of response. And answer those questions. Where are you coming from? Where are you going? And let God lead you to a response. Let me just begin by voicing a prayer for us. And then I'll walk you through a couple of the next steps. God, thank you for your word that you hear us, that you see us. May that shape our lives. That we are lowly. We're outsiders. We're the afflicted. We're the afflictors. We're way down on the credits. <laughs> Yet you see us. You care for us. You listen to us. And most of all, you provided for us through Christ who gave himself so that we could know you by faith. So that we could have access to you. A holy God who is above everything, you invite us into your presence. You invite us to share what matters to us because it matters to you. God, may we be a people who move toward faithful obedience. May we be a people who pray Because you see and you hear. I want to just echo Psalm 17, which says that, God, when we pray, you listen. And ask you to hear the prayers of your people this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.